This is uh, genuinely the first time teaching this, um, and so there's a risk that what I'm going to say won't make any sense at all, <laughs> and it's really pointless, and then there's a risk that it's really, you know, it's really important and cool and exciting. So, all right, so I'll try to explain to you why I care about it, and then um, you can decide, and what it is I'm caring about, then you can try, you can decide if you think the issue is, the issue is important at all, and, um, and whether, whether you think if the issue is important, whether I have in fact made a contribution. Um, <laughs> Like a, a jury class? <laughs> yeah, this, you know, it's in the book. It's chapter four of the book, but uh, but I've never tried teaching it, um, and so I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I don't know whether uh, it could just be wrong. Could be based on a false premise. Mm -hmm. um, so I started off source A just by giving you a quote, uh, you know, from the Gemara in Erevin, which is Elo Velo Divrelo Kim Chaim, which I'm not interested in translating or in understanding in context. I just want to take that as a proxy were the claim that halachic Judaism is in some sense pluralistic. Right? I mean, right, that these and those are the words of the living God means that there has to be some way in which two things which contradict each other can simultaneously be given value within the system. That's our working definition. That's that's our working definition. Minimum, right? So you could you could try and say doesn't really mean that. It just means that you know, you, you get a mitzvah for learning it, even though it's right, even though even though it's not actually true. You could make a claim like that. That's I'm not trying to demand a contextual. I'm using it as a stand-in for a, a claim which it often is used for, right? Which is that halacha, right? That halacha is right is pluralistic in that way. So then what I want to do is like, what I gave you was a list of. Um, Yes. Sorry, doesn't, doesn't that phrase end Vahalakha It does end Vahalakha Kedavrei Vahilah. That used to be, you know, my, my job at pluralistic uh, Jew, the meanings of Jewish, various Jewish denominations would always be to finish the quote and annoy everybody. Right? Because they give the whole wing, you know, encomia, encomia to pluralism, you know, which would end with, if Elodirelakim and I would get up and say Vahalakha Kedavrei Vahilah. So that's, right, that's true. And it's good to remember that. Um, and that, right, and so maybe. Right, so maybe that you know one of the things we'll try and figure out in this class is maybe that's a limit, right? There's no pluralism halachically. Uh, the pluralism is only is on some other level prior to halacha, but halacha has a solution. Um, but I want to, I gave you was a list of um, or at least examples of cases where halacha in monetary cases says that we cannot come to a single truth. There are conflicting claims by the parties, and we cannot come to a single truth about what happened, right? Non-justiciable cases, formally. Right? I mean, right, I mean, um, so the halacha has, right, so the famous one, right, is two people holding on to a talus, uh, right, and two people holding on to a talus, and so we end up saying that they each swear that they own, that, that they, uh, they own not less than half, and they split it. And there are also versions where you split it without an oath, and then there are versions where we say, you know what, we'll just throw it out there and whoever stronger wins. Right? That seems like total non-justiciability. We have nothing to say. And then we have a case, then we have a solution where we say, that we hold it in escrow forever. Uh, right, until a theoretical moment when a prophet comes and tells us, right, and tells us who owned it. And then we have what's called Shuda Dedaini, which is the, um, which is where there's a machloket between Rashi and Rabbi Tam about whether Shuda Dedaini means that we allow judges to take into account Evidence that would otherwise not be probative, even intuition. They decide who they think is more likely correct, even though they have no evidence, and no probative evidence, right? Anything that you could, that you could, that you could cite. Or alternatively, um, which is Rabbi Thomas' version, I think, right? Am I getting them straight? 
Um, I mean, yeah, Rabinatan's version is that it's complete judicial discretion who you think deserves it more or who you like more. Just the judges can give it to Rabinatan's and the judges can give it to whomever they want. Okay? Could be. I don't know if it's limited to three judges or one judge. You know, right? It could be. So you have a whole set of you have a whole set of cases. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Like you know, like, what happens to the ideal of impartial judgment? And Tosfat says, "Hang on a sec. Won't that give way to bribes?" And so the answer is that. People who are bribed aren't judges, so it doesn't. Right? So if they're bribed, they can't do it anymore. Well, even if they're bribed, I mean, that's but part of the part of the whole structure of the way everybody is regulated is that they have to be right. And yeah, it could be right. It's a wild outcome. It's a wild, wild outcome that Allah has a system where it just says, like, you know, there's nothing we can say about this other than let the judges, right, let the so judges can give it to it. Stop the judge from just keeping it. Yeah. It has to be one of the parties. Herself. Right. Um, or not go that far and just say, well, it's true, we can't discern whether party A or party B owns it. No, it has to be one or the other. Sure. Um, so, what's the best thing to do? Right. This only happens in cases where parties are already in dispute. Right. right, there are, right there's, there's a limited number of parties who are in dispute. And you know we could happily spend a semester trying to figure out which of these five or six, which of these five or six mechanisms should play in each case where the where you know the difference between reaching between reaching a standoff, or um, are you, you're hanging out? okay right so we can we, we can, um, we, right, we can try and what I, I just wanted to present this category of cases, and now let's, let's I think let's just hold them in mind and I'll try and show you in a minute show you, we'll turn the page and I'll try and show you why it is. That um, why it is that that I think um, why it is that I think that it might matter with these ca with these cases or what at least what these cases don't show, and I think if you see what these cases don't show, that it might I want to try and make a distinction and see if you see if you buy into them. Um, okay, I think yeah. Okay, so let's turn the page, and uh, I will do something that is always uh, always dangerous, and I'm going to introduce um, I introduce Ayn Rand. But, um, but we'll we'll try we'll try it. Um, okay, so here are the there are two philosophic things that um, that interested me as background to this. One is uh, one of my favorite books is a book by um, Benjamin Friedman called Duty and Healing. I recommend it to all of you highly. I think it's far and away the best book on uh, medical medical med medic, Jewish medical ethics as opposed to medical halacha and instructive in almost every field about what it would be to have. Um, Jewish ethics as opposed to halakha, uh, and how you, halakha can be valuable in constructing ethics. So Friedman 
argues that the right and he, his his stance is an orthodox Jewish clinician functioning as a, as an ethicist in a secular hospital. Right? It means he has, he has to function as the ethicist for uh, right for hospital, which is you know mostly not Jewish people, different religions, all sorts of things. But his stance is right. He comes to it as an orthodox Jew, and what he said and his he makes an argument for the right for the. One of the things that halakha can contribute, or halakhic stance can contribute, uh, and he makes this in terms that are conventional, which I usually do not buy as valuable, but in this case, I think it's valuable. He makes a distinction between duty-based systems and rights-based systems. And what he argues is that in a medical consult in a hospital, if you have a rights-based system, then people are in conflict with each other. Right? They're competing with each other. Who has the right to make the decision? Right? If end of life issues all like that, right? So a rights-based conversation is who right is right sets people at odds with each other. But he argues a duty-based system creates a shared interest. Everyone wants to do the right thing. And now we're just engaged in a conversation as to what the right thing is for all of us to do. No one cares who makes the decision. Right? That's right. That's not right because that's a, that's a rights interest. What the decision is is a duty-based interest. And he argues that a duty-based system, therefore, significantly limits conflict because everybody share, right, because it, it allows everybody to share the interests. We can disagree about what the thing is, but we're arguing in us on the same, right? We're not arguing competitively. We're arguing about something that all of us want to achieve. Does that make sense? Okay, I think it's, right, it's pastorally a very interesting model, right? So, you know, if you can shift people. I'm arguing about from arguing about what their rights are to what are our shared duties. Okay, now here's the second thing. Here's we're going to introduce Ayn Rand. It'll be a little bit more controversial. <laughs> uh, Ayn Rand made a claim, uh, which is right, it's, you know, it's the, the fundamental principle of objectivist ethics that there are no conflicts of interest among rational people. That's the core of her whole system. There are no conflicts, which has all these marvelous climactic moments, you know, where, where, uh, right, where the, you know, there are two men in love with the same woman, and one of them realizes that the other one is a better fit, and so he just bows out. Because you're rational, right? Why would you want to, right? Why would you, right, you know, why, why would you conceivably want to be in a relationship with somebody who has a better person they could be in a relationship with? Okay, lots and lots of people uh, have spent lots of time arguing, you know, try arguing that Rand is absurd as a matter, uh, as a matter of human uh, experience. I'm not interested in whether it's absurd. What I'm interested in the philosophic premise. The philosophic premise that she's working with is that, um, for, is that in a system of right and wrong, ultimately, if everyone perceives their interests properly, they would not be in conflict. Because everyone's interest is to do their duty. If everyone does the thing that is right, however you decide, right? Let duty is a try. Everyone, everyone, everyone should do the right thing. Everyone's interest is in doing the right thing. And her claim is that if everybody, right, if everybody does, right, if everybody properly perceives, and reason is her method of achieve, right, of, uh, of perceiving the right, and what, right, that's, and whether that's successful or not, whether it's reasonable or not, not our issue. But just, I, what I, the, the premise fascinated me, right? If you, right, that she seems to think that a system would be falsified if everybody could know their duty, everybody could know their, or everybody know the right thing to do, and that would lead them into conflict. But if the right thing to do is 
Uh, okay, good. Right. So that's right. So that's what, this is what this is where we we, we start getting right. So the quite right. So the um, right. She, right. Again, her claim is that if I know what I'm supposed to do, right. So I have an interest in X happening. Right. That's the right thing. The right thing to do is for X to happen. That's my interest. And you, right. And I am correct about this. Okay, because I have reasoned properly, or because I have read halacha properly, right, or I have, or God has told me directly by prophecy, right? You're, you're correct about the subject matter of the moment, or the, this higher level concept. That's it. The subject matter of the moment, right? I have, right? I correctly perceive the right thing to do. So then, the premise is that if you also correctly perceive the right thing to do, then we cannot disagree, because there's only one right thing to do. That's the same premise as, Free, right, as Friedman's arguing, right? If we just shift to a duty-based thing, then we have a shared interest. Friedman's thing breaks down. If it turned, right, if we could each have a, if we could each have a duty and those duties could, right, and we could correctly perceive our duty, and yet we could conflict, so then that wouldn't work. Yes. That it's always possible to determine? No. Because otherwise it seems to me most of the time that this is, I'm not interested in whether she's right or not, or whether it's viable. I'm interested in the underlying philosophic premise. Is it true that, right, do we accept it as, right, as given that if two people each perceive their, right, their, the, each perceive what they should do correctly, then they cannot disagree about what should happen. And their disagreement, right, and they can't end up in conflict. Yes, Dan. That is the underlying premise. Yeah. You can also frame it as duty is to achieve a certain Right. And but it could be disagreement as to uh, could be agreement about what that outcome is. Mm-hmm. But there could be disagreement about how to achieve the Right. Outcome. So that's just a lack of information. Yeah, that's right. Those are all lack of information. Right? I'm assuming a world with perfect information. Each of us knows exactly what we are capable of and what the consequence of our actions are. Right? In a world with perfect information, is there, right, right, is there a possibility for what, what the term I'm using is for our moral interests to conflict? Right, because that's, right, those are all functions of information. Right? I might misperceive it, I might not be objective, right, all, but in the end of the day, right, if I were right. It, right, is it possible, can we imagine a world in which God comes to Dan Rosen and, right, and says with absolute clarity, right, right, you should make this happen. And then God comes to Mindy Liss and says, you should make not this happen. And now each of you are correctly acting in terms of, right, in, ter right, in terms of absolutely clear God's will, and yet you conflict. No, that's because um, in practice, yes. In, in, in order <laughs> yeah. to, to come to your conclusion that there can't be conflict. I, I'm not, maybe whether we, there will be conflict in practice because we make errors. Right? Mm -hmm. But I'm, only, I'm interested in the theoretical question. If we could be correct, right? Or another way of framing it is, if, we, right, if I reach the conclusion 
that I am that I have correctly perceived God's will, and I also reach the conclusion that you have correctly perceived God's will. Right? Can I reach the? Right? Is it plausible to, me to say, you know what? I have correctly perceived God's will, and Dan has correctly perceived God's will, and those right are right, and yet we conflict. Is that a possible outcome so of the system? Another way to put that would be: Is it possible that when there is conflict, there are no errors? Yeah. Right. Is does the existence of conflict about the right thing to do imply, uh, right? Imply a lack of information on the part of one party or another? So at first blush, I would say yes. Our fear is that our premises is one right thing to do. Yeah. And yet, if say there are two right things to do, and they conflict, and so one conflicts with two. Yeah, so it can't be, right? So that's right. So we have a limit to Elu Ve'elu Devre'elu Kim Chaim. Right, that's right. That's right, right? We know Elu Ve'elu Devre'elu Kim Chaim cannot, right? If, in Can fact, these are those the words of God. Uh -huh. right, so that's a, right, that's a catchphrase. But there's a limit. It can't be the point where that leads to, right? That can't be true if we both have perfect information, um, right? That can't be true. And all the cases that we started with, right, are... We'll have to claim, right, even, even the case where we say you give it to whoever the judge wants, but the truth is all of us at the end of the day, we have a shared recognition that the property should go to whoever owns it or whoever needs it more, whoever deserves it, right? In the end, right, if, if the parties could understand the base, right, you know, if everybody had the same information, everybody should end up agreeing who the money goes to. Even where we say fight it out, it has to be that fight it out means Either that there, that there's no no one cares right? there's no moral interest in who the money who has the money, or that we just don't know who has right but somebody should have the money. Right? So even though we have cases where the outcome in halacha is two people fight right we paskin we're going to put the stuff out there and the two of you fight it out whoever wins wins. That doesn't mean that you have conflicting moral interests it just means that we have, that our information is imperfect so that we cannot right so that we cannot determine it or alternatively that there is no moral interest who cares. Uh, it doesn't mean, right, whereas if there's, right, in the, in the Randian universe, which I am now transposing into halacha, one of the parties should give in to the other. If they had, right, if there were perfect information, one of the parties, because one of them really owns it, one of them doesn't. In our ownership instance, yeah. one scenario where both parties know who really owns that. Mm-hmm. They should concede. They, they should not be deceitful. That's right. <laughs> right? Um, and there is a single owner. The duty of identifying the proper owner, right? Okay. right. Then good to go. Uh huh. So the interesting challenges, right? So I'm, right, I'm interested, what interests me is can I construct a case, right, within halacha, which I think, where I think it's inescapable that if you accepted this halacha, in fact, there would be a conflict, uh, right? There would, be a, there would be a conflict of moral interests even where people have perfect information. And right, so I like constructing cases where, which force people to make moral decisions about how halacha should be decided, right? So is that an outcome that's acceptable or an outcome that's not acceptable? Yeah. Even 
right? So one of those is more powerful than the other. Right? So now we have an interest. Which one is more is more powerful? Is it one of our interests? That's a that's a question God can decide. Well, it could be the truth is determined by the system. Right? But right, but there is a legal answer. And the result should be right, either if there, if there is a legal answer, the money should go to the person who has the answer. Right? Or if there isn't, then it should be split. So they each have an equal right. Nobody should say, I have a right to, and you also right, and our right, right. There's no conf conflict of the right. There's a place the money should go, and we're doing our best to approximate that, because we're human beings. We can't. We never have perfect information. So now we're having a perfect lack of perfect moral information. What does God want? If we knew what God wanted, it wouldn't conflict. No. Right. That's right. All right, maybe a little bit will be a way out, right? So we can say that, you know what, maybe there, maybe God is non-determinative. Right? Interesting notion, right? That we have to try to figure out how you balance between the right and the... Okay. Yeah, it's going to come back down to Dan's assertion that the system only works if there is only one right thing to do. If we could come to the conclusion that you can have more than one right thing to do, then, then there's... Well, okay, so you think that this is... Right, so that, therefore, you think if I can construct a, a, a halakhic case which seems to yield that result, you think that that would disprove the halakhic reasoning that, yet, that yielded that result? No, I think that if in halakha there can be more than one right result, it may be that elu ve'elu dibre'elu kimachayim means that Ayn Rand's idea is not really Okay, so you think that halakha can end up with, you're fine with the result in which each of us with perfect information that, right, uh, wishes to do what halacha demands of us, and that puts us in conflict. They think it is obvious that that's what halacha demands. How interesting. But I've also been married to one. It's not obvious to me, so I don't know. That's a whole, uh, uh, that's pretty wild that you think that. you say that, that again? Walk me through that again. <laughs> okay, so you said that, that the Ayn Rand's idea depends on there being more than one right thing to do. Right, because it's one of the... I, it seems to me that it isn't But then we and have a solution. Maybe that, that system broke down 2,000 years ago, but hypothetically... That no, was but that's fine. No, no, that doesn't work, because then we, we all know what the right thing to do is, which is to take a vote. Um, no, because the vote hadn't yet been taken at the time when okay, so the right th stuff, so the right thing is not So the right thing is not to fight and stop until we can take a vote. Okay, good. Now we have imperfect information again. No, that's not. That's that's a that, that's a that's a flaw in the law, not a flaw in the information. Uh -huh. Okay, let's hold this for a moment and see what you think at the end. Um, I there is a way out, which I'm going to throw, which is a little bit cheap. You have to be right. Which um, I just finished reading a great book by a uh, political philosopher at Eureka College named David Eisenberg. One of the most fun things I've read in years. Uh, in which he points out that, say, in the Iliad, um, neither the, 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 the Greeks and the Trojans did not think that the other parties were wrong to fight them. And they did not think that there was anything in the information that was lacking. They were fine, right, since they believed that the, 
that, the, that ethics were entirely, this is his argument, were entirely virtue-oriented. So it could be that you produce better people through conflict, and they're supposed to be worse. Because, that, right, because in the absence of conflict, people would be less, right, people would be less virtuous. They had no need to feel that the other side was less virtuous than they were. Right? So, you, so, so you can argue that in a virtue ethical system, that, there, that conflict, right, that the, the, the proper result is we're supposed to have a conflict. But that, impli- right, that entails you know, a whole superstructure of what constitutes human virtue. Um, right, so I have to figure right, so you, you could import that in Talacha, uh, right, and we do sometimes, perhaps, right, sometimes people are supposed to yell and scream at each other in a base measures, perhaps, right, so perhaps, right, yelling and screaming, right, you know, right, the verbal conflict is, uh, is, desire, is desirable in Halacha. So maybe, even if I construct a case, that'll be the answer, that in that case, Halacha is creating a virtue ethic, and, right, and, and the goal of Halacha is that sometimes people should fight, and Halacha is deliberately constructed. Sometimes to yield cold alim gvar, right, so people should fight it out because otherwise we'll develop a soft, you know, a soft population that is incapable of the of the of martial virtue. But you know that may make some of you uncomfortable. It may be like that should happen more often, right? You know, than once in a thousand, than once in a thousand years, if that's really what the system is about. Why is it just I don't agree with you? Well, I don't agree with you either, and then we go on each believing our own thing. Why isn't that conflict enough? If I keep doing my thing and trying to accomplish my goal, you keep doing your thing and trying to accomplish your goal, even if we don't hit each other, it seems to me that that's still a conflict. The question, yeah, but the question is, right? Are we comf- you know, forget Iran? Iran has, you know, Iran's God is reason, and I'm not interested in her God. I'm interested in our God. Uh, right? I could, I could raise the theological stakes, right? If you really want, right? I could say that um, Meiri argues that the definition of monotheism is that there is no conflict of will in God. And that's why he thinks the Trinity is not really a violation of monotheism, because in Christianity the various parts of God can't, conflict, can't have conflicting wills. A divided God is not the same thing as conflicting gods, because conflicting gods, he argues, can't lead to morality. Uh, right, whereas a mon- whereas monotheism, even if you have a divided monotheism, right, that's why right, I've argued that the Ramam thinks the same thing, and that's why the Ramam thinks that Shema Yisrael Hashem Lekeinu Hashem Echad is only a mitzvah for Jews, because the unity of God is a, right, is, a, is a Jewish thing. Lack of unity of God is not is not a Bodhisattva. It's just wrong. So if you take Meiri's conception, right, so then saying that you can have a conflict in the in the will of God is a fundamental theological challenge. How can you have one God, right, right, which, right, where, where the, where the, the will of God for two people conflicts? God is not complicated at all in my Minidian system. The whole point is that God is simple and undifferentiable. Okay, then we can just throw up our hands and not talk about, and, you know, we can't talk about God at all. That's not a useful thing. You know, that's where we say Kibbeyachol. We go on. Otherwise, all Jewish theological discourse is silly. Okay, let's see if I can construct the case, and let's see if right, and see if and see if uh, see if it, it at least amuses you, and maybe it convinces you. So the Gemara Sanhedrin, we're on, we're in page three now, uh, right? So it seems like the, you know the the case where you have you know where you have obviously conflicting wills is where two people are each encouraged to kill the other. So can you construct a case in halachically? In, right, in which two people with perfect information, both about God's will and about 
all aspects of reality. Nonetheless, each of them ought to kill the other. Are you still okay with that? Right, right, I'm trying. To, my question is, can't right? My goal is right, or to, right, is to construct a test case where, according to some halachic arguments, the result will be that there are two people with perfect information, both about what God requires of them and about reality, and nonetheless, each of the, nonetheless, I, as an objective observer of the system, will tell person A, you ought to kill person B, and will tell person B, you ought to kill person A. Without right, each of them should also prevent the other from killing them. Each of them should also prevent the right. It's not a, it's not a, a suicide pact doesn't resolve it, right? Doesn't right? Doesn't um, doesn't resolve the situation. Each of them should kill the other, right? While not allowing the other to kill them. Is that any different from the property situation we were talking about before? So, uh, is the, is the killing part critical to this scenario, or is the dying part critical? Well, the killing part is, is the only reason I, I want to use killing is because it's a um, it seems to be like a case where there's no possibility that there's a third interest. You know, so, you know that we're just, we're, there's some greater good that we're trying to accomplish by it, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, in the case of Paul Dahl and Gavan, yeah. in a sense you're saying, I'm not sure in the case here, I would say in Karma, but what you're afraid of courage to say that. Well, Colin Gavan is not allowed to injure right. the other person. Not encouraged. No, no encouraged. No one says. No one says that. No one, if you choose to give the property to the other party, to the other party, we have no objection at all. Saying in the case of killing, you're saying if you let right. I need a case there's ought. But you're saying in the case of killing, where both are commanded, you're saying I need to construct the case. Each of them ought to. to say that one is allowed to say, okay, you have a right. to kill me, so go ahead and kill me. Yeah, if I can construct the case where each of them needs to fight to fight for the property, that would do the same thing. I don't happen to have such a case, because why would you need the money? Uh, right, and we get with perfect information. That's my goal. Perfect information. Everyone knows exactly the story. Uh, and there's no way. Right? So, like, you know, for example, this, yes. Yeah. So a few minutes ago, you you come to bench and support a, a situation where we couldn't determine who owned an object. Right. So we said that we they're, should fight over they're it. They're entitled to fight. Right. We didn't require them. To, well, That's right. Okay, they're entitled. The person is currently holding it, throws it on the ground, and runs away. The court throws it out. Yeah. So now you, the judge, are requiring that these two parties battle it out to get to the death. Yeah. Well, there's no. It's not necessarily a battle. Like you're being too sportsmanlike. It could be that whichever one has the opportunity should sneak up behind the other one and kill them. Okay, like the, the kids play assassin in college. Spy versus spy, whatever. Yeah. Okay. But. Uh, but, but, but philosophically, the same thing. Yeah. Now, so you know, in 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 a Greek system, allegedly, right? So that you know, the Trojan War is exactly that. So, yeah. So that's what you were describing beforehand. Yeah. So the but Halakha doesn't generally see it as right. Doesn't generally have the same interest in martial virtues. So we would probably say that from God's perspective, the side if all the if all the rights and wrongs of the Trojan War were known, one side or the other should simply say, "Oh, you're right." Either give back Helen or stop demanding that she come back. Right? Which is right. 
Why are we killing each other, right? There's a right and there's a wrong, right? Either either Helen either Helen should go back or she's not. And if you know if Helen should go back, then right, then the uh, the Trojans should just should just should, the Trojans should just stop fighting. And if she shouldn't go back, then the Greeks should stop fighting. Yeah. They don't really talk so much about wars between general nations. They generally talk about you know God having a plan in history. And the war, right? And, the, and if a war is part of the plan, then the right side should win. The five kings and the four kings. They might think the right thing to happen in history is, you know, that everyone should understand should understand which which side victory would be better for the Jews. Right? That might be a, that might be a that might be a version. But if you ask an individual non-Jew, what should you do? Right? The answer is you should. I presume, I don't see any evidence against it that you should fight for the side which is right. The side which is wrong should give in. Okay, does the system give a moral virtue to the, right? In that case, the other, first of all, you know, I mean, I guess you could say one person, I'll flip, to the, what are the people doing in that case, right? So, wait. I think the, one difference is that one, killing one person by another has to itself yeah, and this is what it has to be the right thing for that person to do. Mm-hmm. That's right, right. I have to. I have. It has to be that if I came and I right and I asked God, what should I do? He would say, right. God would say, kill that person. And if the other person came to God and said, what should I do? That person would say, you know, God would say, kill that person. But you're also saying, I'm killing you. From doing what's right. Yes, that's why it's, that's why it's great. That's exactly what I want to go right. Can you say that there's that that it is my duty to prevent you from fulfilling your duty? Does that work halakhically? Right, there's a genuine conflict of duties. Exactly right. That's what I'm trying. Right, is that is that okay? Right, that's the anti-Friedman case. Right, Friedman says that if we just focus on duty, there can't be any conflict. Right, that's that's what halacha does for you. Right, it, right, and the question is, can I construct a case or no? We have conflicting, uh, we have conflicting duties, and it's not because anyone is making a mistake about anything. What are the two truths? What does God want? Right. Yeah, that's part of a single, the single moral truth of what God wants in the world. I don't know. Are you okay with God, right? With God's will conflicting, conflicting that way with itself? Good. So that right? What do you mean, dual? So what do you mean by dual goal adults? <laughs> each of them is killed by each other, right? So go, right? So if your if your relative is. is uh, if your relative is um, is accidentally killed, so then you right, so then you are right. The closest relative is supposed to 
attempt to kill you. And you are right, and um, and right. So what if two people each kill the other? Right, each end up being the avenger of the other. So the answer, shoot. So the answer. There's a way out in which they could theoretically fix it. We have to decide that Goladam is a mitzvah and not a rishut. Right. In order, yeah. in order to well, do that, yeah. Well, for the sake of talking here, this example, then we have a mitzvah to kill Pinchas, or is it? Rishut? Okay, good. So let's look at that case. Right, they're all right. They're all going to be variants of the same case. Uh, right, so let's see. Let's let's see. Right, you're exactly right. Let's see if we, let's see if we can work it out. So the Gemara has this fascinating claim, right? Where Chista, we're talking about the, the right the, the vigilante clause in halacha, right? That there's a certain set of mitzvot. The most famous one is the one that matters to us, which is somebody who engages in very very public um, interest uh, sex with a non-Jewish with a non-Jewish woman from a family that's not that you know that's idolatrous, whatever it may be. Right, we'll, we'll construct such a case. The, 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 the biblical story is Pinchas and Zimri, right? Where Zimri engages in this action with Kazbi Basurin, right? And then Pinchas, Pinchas kills him and her. Okay, so the, right, so Rechista first says, which is a, you know, a fascinating thing about this, which is that the zealot cannot be told by human beings that to act. If a zealot comes to ask the question, should I kill, if Pinchas came and asked, should I kill Zimri? Human beings are not allowed to tell Pinchas kills Zimri. They have to know. They have to know by some form of in some form of religious intuition. Okay, that that makes the case a little bit weird to start with, right? That they're right, and it moves us, but it moves, it moves us out of the realm of human error on the part of anybody else because they can only know it themselves. So now the Gemara says, what happens, right? What happens? If, what happens if at the moment Pinchas comes to kill Zimri, Zimri kills Pinchas first? In self-defense, you have a right of self-defense against the zealot. Now, the given is you don't have a right of self-defense against the court-authorized executioner. And we, we solve that legally by saying that the that once the court pronounces sentence on you, you're dead. And also, by time frame. That's a practical <laughs> question. But assuming, right, assuming you read, assuming that you know you read your Hardy Boys, you know how to tense your muscles so that the, right, the ropes are that the, the ropes are loose, and you stuck the knife in your shoe, you still can't do it because you're dead and you have no right of self-defense. Because dead people have no right of self-defense. Right. That's also right. You know. That, I mean, this yeah. is exactly what we were talking about before. Yeah. Back, back when Twitter each other. That my, my goal is to me doing good requires directly that I block you from doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be you're not allowed to defend yourself. Yeah, it's for that reason. That's right. So there's no conflict in that case. It's clear, right? right? But here, we the government claims that there is there is a zealot, and the zealot is right. The zealot seems right is, in, is at least the zealot is at least entitled to kill the sinner. Mm-hmm. But then the government says that the killer has a but the but the sinner has a right to kill the zealot. So what we have is right now is we have um, we have but that's not that all we have is entitlements now. We don't have oughts. Right now we're just in the same case as two people fighting about money, right? They're fighting about life, and each of them is entitled to defend themselves by killing the other, but there's no reason they should kill the other. Right? So we have to construct a case where they right in order to make this work, we have to construct a case where they ought to kill each other. So. Mm-hmm. Have we 
So if I'm allowed to kill you, huh? um, and thereby drop this good thing in your life, how is that any different, really any different from fire? The outcome is the, is the same. I'm blocking your good act. So we have to construct a case, right? So generally, in self-defense, I, 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 the only situation in which I am, uh, I, I am entitled to kill you is if I have no alternative to stop you short of that. We have to construct a case where the sinner's right of self-defense right, cannot be exercised by any lesser means than killing. Yeah. Okay. We can solve the problem by claiming that people who are part of an idolatrous city can't serve as judges, so they can't determine the other way. Like a third, a third city. These two cities are here in the gap. Right, so they should both let you kill them. Because you're an executioner, and they have an obligation not to resist. They should why eagerly why volunteer. Don't they, why don't each of them? They do, but each of them each of them has an obligation to surrender to the other, right? But they, what they should both do is just surrender to the third parties who will kill them both. Right. Two convicted, convicted murderers. Right. Two convicted murderers. Right. They should both surrender to a third party who will execute them both. Right. That, 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 that's not so hard. <laughs> yes, sir. Let's not bring that article up yet. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's the same kind of case, but it is the same kind of case. You know, there's, there's imperfect information there. One party is making a mistake about the halakha. I don't agree with your. I don't agree with that. Uh, okay. So we have this case, right? But it, we haven't yet gotten to the point where, right? So right? So Pinchas had Pinchas. First of all, we don't know that Pinchas just because Pinchas is entitled to kill Zimri doesn't mean he ought to kill Zimri. And just because Zimri is entitled to defend himself against Pinchas doesn't mean that he ought to kill Pinchas. Whoa, is it possible to be entitled to save your own life and have an obligation? Okay, save? good. That's it, a thing? No, it's right. So, we'll, so now we'll solve that by saying, no, if you're entitled to save your own life, you're obligated under most circumstances. Let's, let's take that as a given. But I'm also obligated to preserve it only by the minimum mean, means necessary. So there's going to be a basic problem, which is... So let, let's, take, let, let's read the next thing and we'll show you what the basic problem is. So if you look at the Rambam, this is, we're still on page, on page we're on page uh, three at the bottom. Um, so the Rambam says, in his definition of what constitutes of who Pinchas is, he says that, um, this is the third line of the Rambam, if the zealots um, attack and kill the person who commits the sin, they are praiseworthy and seen as, you know, as, as engaged in proper eagerness for the mitzvah. So the Rambam says, that Pinchas, right, that, that the Pinchas ought to kill Zimri, not just that he's entitled to kill Zimri. So we have one side of the equation. Right, the zealot, right, it's not that, even though the zealot, right, the zealot doesn't necessarily have a, a legal duty, right, if you ask what does God want, 
God wants them to kill the other party. If they do so, they are praiseworthy. Okay, so we have one ought. And we know that Zimri has a right, but it might be that Zimri, right, that Zimri should, um, should not exercise his right, but then we say, no, Zimri has a right, right, that if he has a right to live, he has an obligation to live. So the only question remaining is, but Zimri still has no, um, no duty. To, but the question is, that can we construct a situation where Zimri's only option is to kill Pinchas? So practically, right, there, there are all, lots of situations where, you're, where, practical, where, you, where your only option would, right, is to kill the other party. It's not a practical, but there is an issue. Zimri has one option, which is less. Which, why doesn't Zimri just stop sinning? Because the Ramah also said, right, that the only time when a Kanoi, right, the next the line of the Ramah, right underneath the, the Ravid, right, where the print changes again, he says, Ve'en ha-kanoi rashai lifkoaban ela bish'at ma'aseh. The Kanai, right, Pinchas is only allowed to kill Zimri while Zimri is actually engaged in the sexual act. So that means that Zimri has an out. The out that Zimri has is he can simply withdraw. So I still haven't constructed my case, right? Pinchas ought to kill Zimri, but Zimri, even if the only way Zimri can save his life is by killing Pinchas, practically he ought not to, because he has a better solution, which is he can just, right, he can just separate himself um, from the sexual act, and now Pinchas can't kill him anymore. He should give in, because he's wrong. Right, so, right, so all my effort, right, failed, right, because I just I don't have the case, because I, I have Pinchas, I got the Ramam to tell me that Pinchas ought to kill Zimri, I got Rav Yochan telling me Zimri can kill Pinchas, but I can't say that Zimri ought to kill Pinchas, because there's an obvious solution, which is that Zimri can withdraw. That's the right thing for him to do. So in the 20th century, uh, a the Chalka Joel. Uh, so far, you know, this is the first. This is the first time I found this is the second paragraph in D. Um, this came up with a fascinating, uh, a fascinating uh, claim. What he said is that in the context of um, in the context of uh, uh, you know, if 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 a couple is having sex and discovers in the midst of the sexual act that the woman is Anita. So the halacha is that the right, the man is supposed to wait until his erection goes away, because withdrawal is also a sexual act. So the Chilkat Yoav comes up and says, "Aha! So now we can construct a case where Zimri has no option but to kill Pinchas, because he right because he has no method of ceasing to sin." In such a way that would cause Pinchas to kill him. In fact, right? In fact, can, right, in fact, the attempt to right, the the attempt to right to, to stop the sin would itself be a sin in the moment. And therefore, right, and therefore, therefore, Zimri has no right, has no option short of killing Pinchas, and therefore we can construct a case in which two parties have right, two parties each have an ought to kill each other. If Zimri asks what he should do, the answer is you ought not withdraw. That would be a sin. But that's a different, different meaning. Rambam, Rambam, right? He's interpreting Rambam. What is, what does it mean? He could, if he had enough time, if he had enough time, he could separate. Right? And then Pinchas has to stop. But in the very moment, right, where Pinchas is there, holding his spear over him, 
if right, Zimri does not, Zimri has no option other than to stab Pinchas because he does not have a, right, he does not have a legally valid option of withdrawing. Firearms requiring some gonna say. Like exactly what Zimri is doing is not clear to me. Right. So I'm just right. That's a you can construct right, but it's not you know, since I'm in the realm of theory, right? I can I can give you a practical case in which no there's nothing there's nothing non fatal he could do. Right. Sure, there are lots of cases where it wouldn't come up, but there will be a case in which there is no, there is the only, the only viable option of self-defense is killing somebody else. And right, you say, but shouldn't he just stop sinning? The answer is he can't. Right, so right, I guess it's, it's a holy, th- right, I'm only interested in constructing, right, constructing in the theoretical question, right, which is have I, have I constructed a, um, right, have I constructed a halachi outcome in which two parties, uh, right, have, right, the, the ought for two parties. Right, what God wants of each of the parties is them to kill each other. And it doesn't seem like there's any virtue involved. Right? He doesn't want them to kill each other because he wants them to fight. There's no fight. Right? It's just whichever one of them has right, whichever one of them strikes first wins. And right, and is that un- unacceptable? So you can get rid of this. You can say the Ramam's wrong and right and and Kanadi is not praiseworthy. You can say the Chilkat Yoav is wrong and we don't, we don't, right, and we don't and we don't um and we don't we don't, we, we would tell we would tell him to withdraw uh, to uh, to withdraw anyway, there are all sorts of ways in which we could do it, but I think I have a case. Right, that's all. I think I have a case in which I can pose this theological question, and right, and that's right, and the, and the and the interesting question to me is, does it have the profound theological implications that I'm quite read right, that the Erie would I think would give it? In which case, we say, okay, here is a scenario where I know that one of these things has to be wrong. Because the result it yields is impossible. Uh, or do I say no? You know, in the end of the day, yeah, it's okay. It's okay if right, my conception of, of pluralism is sufficient to allow God, right, to allow it to say, yeah, that's right, to say what Deborah said earlier. You know, God, God is beyond my understanding. So why would it bother me? Okay, so that's right. So that's what you know. I think it matters. Uh, I think probably end of the day I would say this is impossible. Um, and then right the question is just is okay. So if I have my limits to Elibelos, and how far back can I go? How far back up will I? Is it just okay? That's a crazy case, or does it say you know what? Oh look, we you know actually there. Once I understand there are limits, so now I have to think about what the um, right, what what my boundaries are. You know, there maybe I'll push my boundaries or pluralism back further because uh, now I know I have a limit. Uh, okay, so I do this for fun. I should say that there is a much, much more radical way of um, of, uh, of framing this, which is the Meishiloach, um, right? That's the um, that's the last story. The Meishiloach is the Ishbitzer Rebbe is in nineteenth century, and he is a really, really radical uh, figure. Um, and I don't pretend to know anything about him, but I know that this happens when I was researching something many years ago. Rabbi Mandelbaum of the YU Library sent me to the source, so it's always stayed with me. And I'll just read it to you, and you'll see what you, just see what you think. So he says this, somebody who has distanced themselves entirely from the evil inclination and resists sin with all, their, with all their will to the point that you could not imagine somebody protecting themselves against sin more than this. Um, then, if he is nonetheless overwhelmed by desire, sexual desire, then that obviously must be the will of God. 
Um, right? And it must be that God wants this coupling. And, um, right? and that, he says, is what happened, right? That, he says, is what happened with Zimri. And that's why Zimri is entitled to defend himself against Pinchas. Because, obviously, this was God's will. In the end of the day, what he's famous for is saying, as opposed to the Gemara and the way we Paschim, which says everything is in the hands of heaven except for fear of heaven, he's famous for saying everything is in the hands of heaven, including the fear of heaven. He believes that there are circumstances that ultimately he doesn't believe in free will. And because he doesn't believe in free will, I think, therefore he has no problem. Pinchas has an obligation, Zimri has an obligation, Zimri has to do what he has to do, and Pinchas has to do what he has to do, and it's all determined anyway, so it doesn't matter at all. So I just give it like, if you want somebody who's willing to accept these implications, I think he would accept these implications. But I think that this is part of what I'm trying to do here is to show how dangerous this is, and therefore one really shouldn't use the Ishbitzer as a basis for uh, theology, which some of my friends are doing. Because the Ishbitzer has wild, wild implications. Yeah, if you get rid of free will, then you can do anything. Ironically, right? Yeah, but, it's uh, tricky to ask moral questions. Right? It's tricky to ask, right? But you know, like he sets up the situation where, where, okay, now Zimri has Zimri is doing what he ought to do, right? Extreme. Not just Zimri doing what he ought to do when he kills Pinchas. Zimri is doing what he ought to do by having sex with Cusby. It, it sounds like he thinks that if Zimri hadn't tried to avoid Cusby, then he would not be doing what he ought to do. Doesn't that imply free will? No, it's only the only way that Zimri, the only the way that we can know. That Zim, right, the only way that Zimri could know that he's doing the right thing. Yes, here we get into the, you know, I, I enjoy quoting the position of Rosetta Kalami Lublin, who is, uh, right, who is in this stream, um, you know, where he says that the, that he, said he doesn't believe in free will either. What he believes, right, he believes the only free will you have is to decide whether you were sinning or not, because sin is the belief that you acted against God's will. If you take that position, right, then, then it ties in perfectly. But I don't know how much Rosetta ties into the Ishbitzer. I think that's the issue. The issue, the issue of the Ishbitzer is, is should he feel guilt or not? And the answer is no. You can know you don't really shouldn't feel guilt because he, you have to know that if you, if you protected yourself to the extreme possibility, then you know that God really wanted you to sin. It's an amazingly wild thing which nobody should take as the basis for theology. And people should like say, no, like the Ishbitzer is a really cool thing that we should do it into the realm of theory and anybody who starts quoting the Ishbitzer in the realm of halacha is doing something profoundly, profoundly dangerous. Um, but you end up with this result, right? He, right? If you don't believe in free will, then why not? Right? So he ends up, right, he, he, he goes extreme. It's not just that Zimri is doing the right thing by defending himself. Zimri is doing the right thing by doing the action which obligates Pinchas to kill him. And I think that Pinchas, I think, now the question you can say, no, maybe he doesn't bother, because maybe he thinks that if Pinchas knew that he shouldn't kill Zimri, because why should, right, I don't know about the answer, I don't know the answer, right? You could get out of the interest by saying, no, it's only because Pinchas can't know that Zimri really tried his best, that Pinchas, right, that, that, that Pinchas... Well, once, once you turn everyone into marionettes. Yeah. So I just throw that, that, yeah, I just throw that to show, like, how far it could go. To me, the mm-hmm. interesting question really is just, right, you know, is that I, I think I can, if you put together the Ramam's praise of Pinchas, with the Chalket Yov's explanation that, right, that you can construct a circumstance where Zimri cannot give in. Because giving in, right, because giving in does not resolve the problem. Giving in, continue, right, giving in just right, generates Pinchas having an even greater obligation to kill him. Right, so, if you, right, so, so I think if you combine those, you get the result that, you can, right, that two people with perfect information about everything will still end up, will still end up with an obligation to kill each other. 
And uh, right, so the question is, is that an impossible theological monstrosity or not? Uh, and if it is, which I tend to think it is, then I think that even though this is a really crazy wild out ca wild case, I think that it authorizes you to say, you know what, there have to be limits on pluralism. And we just have to figure out where they are. And you know, things that are on the boundary of that, we'll start, we'll start saying, yeah, I'm not so comfortable saying here, um, because it here. Uh, no, so right, so the next stage is right, you know, is, you know, I think generally, you know, maybe it's just the way I think that if you establish a theoretical possibility, right, you know, if somebody says, no, that's right, that's not right, that's impossible, so then you can't talk about what if it might be there, what if it's close to that, what if it's not right. But once you establish a theoretical possibility, so then, right, so then you can, then the question where you draw the line becomes much more important because then you have to deal with what if it might be that, right? What if it, right? So that's, that's, all, that's all I'm trying to do, right? I agree with you that this is, a, you know, if the end of the day, all you say is, okay, Rabbi Clapper showed that we can't both accept the Rama's vision of, right, the Rama's vision of Kanoi, of Kanoi and the Chalkos Yohav's explanation of why, right, of why Zimri is allowed to kill him even though, right, he really should give in, right? So, okay, so that's just the, you know, that's a cool shear to give. Uh, but if you say what Rabbi Clapper's shown is that, one has to be cautious about just saying because the result of saying in some circumstances yields a fundamental theological problem and a collapse of morality. Because once you're willing to allow God's will to conflict, so then, right, then you have a much bigger deal. Right? So that's, that's, that's what I think. I think in the end, it, it, you know, that, the, the, that showing this means you have to make choices at a much earlier stage uh, of pluralism than you would otherwise. So uh, Category of allowed to defend God. Yes. He must defend God. Yes. Because if he, for whatever set of reasons, um, there's no one. That's the only. The only option he has, and he has the a only option. Right, and he has a duty of self-preservation. Um, right, that's Deborah's okay, argument. So his other option is to let himself be killed. Right. So that's where Deborah. Right. So that's where Deborah's inserted the, the thesis, which we could reject, that anybody who has a, anybody who has a right of self-preservation also has a duty. We could reject that assumption too. No, because he's entire right, once he's entire right, so the, the language of the Gemara, the language of the Gemara is that Pinchas, is that Zimri can kill Pinchas as a rodef. A rodef is a halachi category, and there's a mitzvah to kill a rodef, to defend yourself. That yes, he is committing a sin, which is That's correct. Even though, he, well, it's not clearly he's committing sinning that's Yeherg Vel Yavor. Right? Because sleeping, yeah. sleeping, sleeping with this woman is not a Yeherg Vel Yavor. It's just something which, someone can, which a particular kind of person can kill you for. Do you think that a Kanai can't kill someone in the sleeping position? It doesn't say so. That would be a very, very strange assertion. Why? Of course you can't. That's, that's, that's a crime. It deserves execution by the courts. Can I, can never, How right? often do people commit such crimes in front of witnesses? Doesn't matter. Just out of curiosity. It doesn't matter. There's only the list of three crimes. If you commit them in front of witnesses, that can you can kill. Them. You can't you can't expand those categories. You know, that there's no there's no warrant in halacha for expanding the categories. Normally we right, vigilante justice is a deep threat to the system. Right? So that's why I, I think it's just this case. You know, so Tress has pointed out it correctly that there's you know that we could try and expand that, which is the Michelin Elachai skip. 
and talking about other places where somebody has a permission to kill but no right but but no but no right. So if you say in such cases the person is praiseworthy, even though they only have a right, but it's not clear like the Goel Adam, according to the Bishnah's Rashud, is probably not praiseworthy. Right? And if it's a mitzvah, you probably don't have an obligation, you don't have, probably don't have a right of self-defense. Right? So it's right, so it's very hard to construct a case where somebody has where somebody ought to k- kill somebody else, but only has permission and not an obligation. And that's the only case, right, you know, and the construction of a case where somebody ought, and yet you have a right of self-defense, right, that's hard. And then the construction of a case where you ought, and somebody has a right of self-defense, but, and, but they have no practical, there's a, we can construct a case where that right of self-defense cannot be exercised by anything less than killing, right, that's step three. But I think if you put all those together... <laughs> I think I succeeded in constructing the case. And then maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't. You know, it was, uh, you know, the, Deborah was talking about earlier, right, you know, that when I, that in my, in my Zakin Mamre case, where I, you know, I spent three months trying to construct the case where, where with imperfect information, where, you know, where with imperfect information, one party has to do something which then obligates the other party to kill them. But that was a, uh, right, but that was, right, that's an imperfect information case. Right, where I constructed the case where there's an obligation to do something which then, Creates an obligation on Beitin to kill you as a Saki Um That took months. This didn't take months. Um, but you know, I, th- I think it's a useful, you know, it's, it's a useful mode of testing, of, of, of testing to what extent, and I guess in generally, right, that the other case argument article was also intended to force people into a choice between saying, uh, between saying that, um, either accepting conclusions that, they w- that I think they would find deeply displeasing, or accepting that there have to be assumptions prior to halakha, which halakha has to be based, which, which you then have to interpret halakha based on. Because there was a regnant position that the Soloveitchik's halachic man argued, right, um, argued that halakha had to be understood entirely in its own terms and you could not bring any prior assumptions to it. And so I was trying to blow that up. By, by, no, do you really want to yield that result? No, you don't. Right? This is a result that would yield, that would, that would, that that is generated by that assumption, which you think is false. Therefore, you have to you have to reject your initial assumption that there are no assumptions. All right. So this is another version of that argument by saying, if, right, that if, you know, that you, yeah, there are things that we won't accept. And I think the Meiri's theological claim is a really is a really good way to frame it. Right? That that I think is not in, not in the book, but that the notion, like you know, we have in the end part an essential purpose of monotheism is to ensure that people's duties never conflict. I think, right, I, think that's a, I think that's the strong assertion. Uh, okay, thank you so much for listening to that. That was fun. That's great. Thank you. <laughs>